It is 2022. Happy New Year, which is crazy to say there's a lot of twos in this next year with 2022. And um, maybe for some of you, the unknown is exciting. Some of us are wired in a way that it's a new year. It's a fresh start. There's energy. There's excitement. There's fresh ideas. What's it going to be like as Bruce shared, you know, as he's driving at night and He was by himself in the car because everybody else was sleeping basically and he starts to think of ideas and things and there's an excitement about the new year. But maybe for some of you, we're wired differently, it's the opposite effect. That you think about a new year and maybe it brings about that it's draining, exhausting, stressful, maybe even a little bit of anxiety rises up in you when you think about the unknowns of this next year. When we rolled into January of 2021, nobody knew what God would do that year in your life personally, in your family. Maybe it's been a great year. Maybe it's been a challenging year. But 2022, we don't know what it holds. I was doing some reading recently. The American Psychological Association said over the last two years, formal diagnosis of anxiety has quadrupled in the last two years. Fear and anxiety is a real struggle in our world. It has been for thousands of years, but there's been an intensification. There's been an increase. We have much that if you watch news, that can only add in you fear. They like to play on your emotions. And so maybe there's a fear about the weather and global warming, maybe fears about economic fears, political fears, and of course, health related fears that we've experienced the last few years. There's a lot of fears out there. I'll give you a few, a few technical names. There's chitophobia is the fear of hair. I don't know if any of you have that fear. There's ergophobia that is the fear of work. seems like maybe in our world, some people have bought into ergophobia. There's xanthophobia is the fear of the color yellow. I don't know why yellow is such a fearful color, but then there's octophobia, the fear of the number eight, not seven, Not nine, but the number eight. And then this next one, I won't even read it to you, the name, because I can't even say it, but it's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. (laughs) We got fears for a lot of things. And this last one that may be relevant is nomophobia, the fear of being without your phone. And maybe right now I'm checking, oh, my phone, it's down there. Oh my goodness. And it's on silence. So if you text me, I won't get it right now, thankfully. I double checked that, right? But we've got a lot of fears and fears is a real thing. So I've titled today's message, Fear and the New Year. Fear and the New Year. Not not all fears are bad. Fear of pain is a good thing. It keeps us from putting our hand on a hot stove, right? Maybe fear of going to jail keeps us from driving at excessive speed down the road. Maybe you're not fear of willing to pay a little fine so you speed, but not excessively maybe. Right, And so fear is not all bad, but today we're going to dig in the word and we're going to look at one specific aspect of fear. You know, God and Jesus specifically speaks on fear quite a good bit in the New Testament. So if you got your copy of God's word, go to Luke chapter 12. Go to Luke chapter 12. And while you're flipping there, I'll give you a little background for where we're headed in Luke chapter 12. This is later in Jesus' ministry. He's getting pretty close to heading to the cross And there's a large crowd of people gathering. We're going to see it's a massive crowd of people that are gathering. But since it's later in Jesus' ministry, most of the people have already made up their mind about Jesus. 
Most of the people have heard of Jesus, heard of the claims of Jesus, heard the teachings of Jesus in Israel, and they've really kind of made their decision. They've made their determination. Not everybody, but most people. The majority of the people that are going to be in this crowd have really sided with the the religious establishment, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and really sided with that line of thinking. And in Luke 12, Jesus begins a lengthy message, all of Luke chapter 12 and in the beginning of chapter 13, where he's still calling for people to follow him in salvation. He's still calling people to become a follower of him. However, his messages begin to take a turn of warning because most people that are present aren't really bought in and buy into what he's teaching. And so the setting takes place. There's thousands of people that are gathering. Most people believe it's about 30 to 50,000 people have gathered to hear Jesus. That's a massive crowd. That's a massive crowd today. But back then, 2,000 years ago, 30 to 50,000 people didn't gather. You didn't have football stadiums to the size of what we have today. This is a massive crowd that's gathering. You might ask, well, if most of the people have already decided what their beliefs are of this guy, Jesus, then why are they gathering? Well, in Israel, there was an intensification between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious kind of establishment. And their conversation was intensifying. And well, it was, the, it was the most interesting thing going on in all of Israel. So people love drama. People love conflict. Sounds a lot like today. So the people gathered and said, hey, if there's drama, if there's conflict, if the, if the Pharisees are going after Jesus and he's teaching, well then, hey, let's show up and let's see what happens. So the crowd is huge, 30 to 50,000 people. And the text in, in verse one says they're actually stepping all over each other. They're actually trampling on each other because think about it, there wasn't speakers. There wasn't amplification systems. So if you wanted to hear the conversation, you wanted to hear the message, you had to get all the way up close. So maybe next Sunday, we'll get rid of the speakers and see how many people want to come up close. Maybe not. Some of us love the stadium seating, right? And so we've got... We've got this taking place that they're jumping all over each other because they want to be close. They want to see what's happening. So Jesus is about to begin a lengthy message. And at the very beginning of the message, he's really going to speak to his disciples or his friends, not just the 12 disciples, but his followers. Everyone there will be able to hear. But at the beginning of the message, he really drills down and speaks to those he calls his friends or his disciples, people that have committed to being a follower of Jesus or they're on the fence. They're considering it. They're thinking about it. That's who he addresses at the beginning of his message. And then he moves in to a broader, broader text. So as we dive into Luke chapter 12 here, we're going to be in verses four through seven this morning. Let me just pray for us briefly, and then we'll dive right into the text. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this morning, Lord, as we lean into your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today. You have a word for us this year. God, would you speak to our hearts today? Challenge us, change us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So in Luke chapter 12, let's read together verse four and five says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, Again, my friends, speaking to the smaller crowd, even though everyone else could hear. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Church, what is needed in the church today is a great, big, strong fear of God Almighty. We need to honor and respect the greatness, the majesty, the holiness, the brilliance, the grandeur, the beauty of God. We see in verse five right here, it says, I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. God is king of the universe. He's sovereign, he's king, he's over all. And when you unpack the scriptures, we see that really Jesus doesn't send us to hell. It's our sin that sends us there. It's our broken nature because a holy, right, perfect God can't have a sinful nature in his presence in heaven. But this place of hell is a real place. It's a real destiny in the afterlife. And here are some descriptions of this place that we can be sent if we're not in real relationship with him. It's an eternal burning fire. There's smoke, there's darkness, there's wickedness, divine judgment, there's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, there's wailing, there's torment, and we're all alone. Fear him, the one who can send you there. If we have a big fear of God, it will free us from the smaller fears of mankind and those that are around us. When we see God for who he actually is, it begins to change our perspective. It begins to shift our focus. I'll read to you some verses about fear in the scripture. Proverbs 9, verse 10 in the first part says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The foundation is a fear, a reverence and honoring of the Lord, recognizing who he is. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon had lived a life that was filled with anything you could ask, fame, fortune, finances, prestige. He had everything. He had everything you would search for that the world today says you want, Solomon had it. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, this is what he said at the very end, chapter 12, verse 13. He says, to end of the matter, the end of the matter, all has been heard, his life has been lived. He said, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon had it all. And when he drilled down to it all, he said, it all comes back to fearing the Lord, honoring, revering who he is and recognizing where we stand in that same position. Psalm 33, eight says this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Church, we need to be in awe at the greatness of God. We need to have a right-sized fear of God is necessary for our spiritual growth. It's not a secondary thing, it's necessary. Some examples in the scripture of people that had a right-sized fear of God. In Exodus chapter three, Moses encounters the Lord and it says that Moses took off his sandals not because he was walking into his home and he didn't want to bring dirt into his house, but Moses took off his sandals because the place he was standing was holy ground. He was before a mighty God and his fear, his reverence caused him in honor to take off his shoes. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah has an encounter with the Lord and it says that Isaiah fell flat on his face, face down, and this is what Isaiah said. He said, woe is me for I am lost. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the Lord and it humbled him. He went face down in reverence and his fear of the Lord. And then a little bit later, he heard the Lord speaking together in the Trinity saying, who will go for me? And Isaiah rises up and he says, here am I, send me. See, Isaiah had a right-sized fear of God and it trumped his fear of man. I wonder when was the last time that you genuinely were in awe of the greatness and grandeur and brilliance of God Almighty? When was the last time that stopped you and you just pondered, considered, were maybe even moved emotionally of the greatness of our God. You know, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, a great reformer was challenging the established church because he had discovered in the word that there were some things that were not right. And he had a choice to make. Is he gonna fear God or is he gonna fear man? And Luther stood up because he feared God more than he feared man. And here's what Luther said. He said, if you fear God, you will have no one else to fear. Everything starts with an understanding and a fear of God Almighty. We need a right-sized view of God and the fearing of God is the beginning of wisdom. In the Old Testament, there's an incredible story of contrasting fear of God or fear of man. And in real life, many of our decisions we make comes back to that kind of a point. Are we trying to please man or do we recognize what God is calling us to? So in the Old Testament, the people of God the Israelites were promised a specific land, the land of Canaan. And Moses was their leader. And they come to the place that it was their time. It was their moment to inherit the promised land. And Moses decides he's gonna take 12 individuals and he's gonna send them out as kind of undercover spies. He says, you go to the land, check out the land, check out the people, come back and give us a report and let's get ready to go in and take this land that God is giving us. So the spies go in. They do their, their recon and their evaluation and they come back. Here's the report. The land is amazing. Every crop we grow is gonna grow well there and flourish. It's gonna be like nothing we've ever seen. But the people, they're stronger than we are. They're larger than we are. And their cities are incredibly fortified. And so 10 of the spies said their conclusion was, we can't go into the land. There's too many obstacles. The men in that land are too great. But Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies, agreed with their evaluation. Yes, the land is amazing. Yes, the people are huge, they're strong, and their cities are fortified, and it's gonna be a challenge. However, their conclusion was completely different because they said, God is for us and he's calling us to it. Let's trust in the Lord. Let's honor God. We believe he's given it to us. Let's honor him in this, even though it looks daunting. In Numbers 14, nine, Caleb and Joshua said this, pleading to the people, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for they are bread to us. I love that. They are bread to us. Bread is a good thing. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. 
And the Israelites had a choice. They heard the assessment and they're gonna have to decide, are we gonna go with the 10 spies report and their conclusion? Or we're gonna go with the conclusion of Caleb and Joshua that elevated their fear of God, their honor of God, their respect of God, their belief in him. And they came to this point of choosing. And the people of God said, we fear man. Therefore, we're not gonna follow what God has called us to. And then they went and wandered, wandered in the wilderness. The same thing. They had the exact same analysis, but they came to a completely different conclusion. What we need is a great big fear of God like Caleb and Joshua, like Moses, like Isaiah, even like a Martin Luther, a big fear of God today in the church and in our lives personally. You know, many years ago when I was younger, I was actually a teenager, I was challenged at Straight Up Weekend, now called Movement Weekend. And the speaker that year came in and he challenged us and he said, we should use terms to describe God that are not terms we use in our everyday lives. Because we call a lot of things cool and awesome. And then we call God cool and awesome. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't really set that apart. But if we'll call God by things that are different, that aren't in our common vocabulary, there are things that we don't just call the next thing next door. It begins to remind us that God himself is set apart, that he is other, that he is different, that he's holy, that he's majestic, that he's magnificent, that he's radiant, that he's glorious. Maybe descriptions that we don't use as much in our regular daily lives, but they remind us of the greatness the grandeur, the amazing nature of God Almighty that we need to come in contact with the awe of God, the greatness of God. He is close. He is a friend, but he's not an equal. He does draw near to us. And we'll see in a little while that he does care for us and love us, but he is God Almighty and he is to be revered respected, honored, and even in the text we see, he's to be feared. If you look at me in verse five, it says twice, verse five of chapter 12, but I will warn you whom to fear, fear him, who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell, which we've talked about. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's an emphatic repetition in that one verse. It begins with, I'll tell you whom to fear, fear God. And then at the end it says, I'll tell you, fear him. There's an emphatic repetition Emphasis is being driven. Sometimes you'll see Jesus in the scripture. Sometimes he'll say, truly, truly, when he wants to get our attention. Last week, our lead pastor talked about the angels might say, hark, to get your attention. Well, here, there's a repetition. There's an emphasis saying, don't miss it. Because what we need is a big view of God that will ultimately lessen our fears of others. When we have a right view of God, it begins to transform other aspects in our lives. When we have the right priority. Look at me in verse four of the text where Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Now, killing of the body is a bad thing. That sounds really bad. And it is bad but it's not the worst thing possible. We know in the scripture to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you're a believer in Jesus, that's bad. 
but it's not the worst thing. Now, if you're not a believer in Christ, well, then I understand why death may be one of your greatest fears. Because the afterlife, you don't know what it is. You have no confidence in what it holds. Hugo Chavez was the leader of Venezuela in 2013. He was on his deathbed. He was gripped by fear because he had no idea what was coming his way. And the last words that Hugo Chavez said was to his doctor, and this is what he said. He looked at him and he said, please don't let me die. Because in his case, it was a worst case scenario. Not sure what was coming next. But as a Christian, we shouldn't let fear of man paralyze us from the abundant life that God is calling us towards. When we have a right-sized fear of God, it lessens our fear of humanity. So we see in this text in just verse four and five, we're not to fear man, but we are to have a right God-sized fear of him, the one who holds our eternal destiny in his hands. But there's a little bit of a shift that starts in verse six, a little bit of a transition here. The end of five, it says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And then verse six, it says, a quick shift, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God. Five sparrows sold for two pennies. In the book of Matthew, it says two sparrows are sold for one penny. So in this aspect, it's kind of like a public special. They're getting a BOGO. They're throwing an extra one in, right? A little extra sparrow being thrown in. But a sparrow being thrown in, really sparrow was the food for poor people. It was the ramen noodles of their day. Seemingly insignificant creature of the world, a little sparrow, incredibly low value. Yet not one of them, if you look in the text, is forgotten before God. The only people in that society that cared about sparrows were those that were poor. And yet the God of the universe doesn't forget about one little sparrow. He cares for the insignificant. Though they may cost very little to purchase, they were highly valued by the creator, God. Not even one of his most insignificant creatures was outside of his care. It's incredible to think about that dynamic. And then it moves on in verse seven at the beginning. And it says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. We've seen this analogy multiple places in the scripture. He moves from general creation, the sparrow, the animal that he's created. So then he goes personal, drills down to you and to me. And he says, the actual hair on your head, they're numbered. Now, for some of us, that's a large amount of numbers. For some of us, that's a smaller amount of numbers. And it's getting smaller by the day. So I'm glad I'm making it a little easier on God to keep charge of things, right? They say the average person has about 150,000 hairs on their head. They actually say redheads have the least number of hairs on their head. I have no idea why. Scientists don't even know why, but we have a redhead in our home, so there you have it. But he has more hair on his head than I have on mine. But if you do the math, maybe seven or so billion people on the planet, that leads to 1.125 quadrillion hairs on heads that God has to keep up with. That's 1.125 with 12 zeros that are always coming and going. He knows the smallest and most insignificant details about you. The God of the universe 
knows the smallest and most insignificant details about you and about me. It's incredible. What's the big idea? Why why unpack this sparrows and hares? Well, here's the, the first thing to know is this. It's an encouragement that nothing escapes his knowledge. I mean, nothing, nothing escapes his knowledge. A sparrow falls, he knows it. One hair falls out. You pluck it tonight at home. Ah, you know it. He's counting it. Oop, there's a calculator. Nothing escapes his knowledge. He knows it all. And if he knows to that level of minute detail, then guess what? He knows what you've walked through in 2021. He knows what you will be walking through in 2022. He's already there. He knows what you will be walking through and he's preparing you for it. Nothing escapes his knowledge and that's an encouragement, but you know what? As well as that's a warning because nothing escapes his knowledge, your thoughts, your actions, things in secret, things hidden. In the first part of chapter 12, he talks about the hidden things will be revealed. The secret things will be made known. So a word of warning is that nothing slips past him. It's an encouragement, but it's definitely a warning. The significant and the insignificant don't slip past the God of the universe. And we've seen that we're not to fear man, but we're to fear God. We've seen that nothing escapes his knowledge, but then there's this incredible shift in this passage at the end of verse seven. It's kind of the big shift that takes place right before he moves into the major part of his message. And he says here at the end of verse seven, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says, fear not. Yet just a few lines earlier with double repetition, he says to fear. He says, fear God. But then he makes a shift and he says, fear not. Why this change? You see, Jesus had just unpacked that he, nothing escapes his knowledge. And remember, he was speaking to his disciples, to his friends, to his followers. And they heard that as a word of encouragement, but also as a warning. Just like you and me realizing if Jesus knows everything, man, I'm, I'm in trouble. I mean, I'm done for. I'm doomed. If he knows my motives, if he knows my thoughts, if he knows my heart, man, I am... I'm done, I'm over, I'm in trouble. So Jesus says, fear not, because now that you fear God, you don't need to fear. The right size fear of God becomes a comfort because of the grace of God. Let me say that again. The right sized fear of God actually becomes a comfort because of the grace of God. When we fear him, when we honor him, when we recognize his ultimate position, we have all of the greatness of God, but yet he calls us his children. We're his child, we're in his family, we're under his refuge, we're redeemed, we're adopted, we are in his hand and the enemy can't take us out. That's a permanent nature to those aspects that we're in the hand of God and he can't take us out. That brings us incredible comfort. Yet in the passage, it says we are to fear God because he's the one that determines our eternal destiny. And yes, we fear the king of the world. However, he says, fear not. For you're more valuable than many 
than many sparrows. He begins that we're to fear him and he concludes, fear not for I care for you. Look at that at the end of verse seven. For you are of more value. You're of greater value than many sparrows. See, Jesus didn't bring sparrows in a special relationship with him. Jesus didn't leave heaven for earth to seek and to save lost sparrows. He left heaven and came to earth to seek and to save lost souls like you and me. He came to pursue us. The God of the universe who is worthy of all things cares for you. The hairs on your head in much greater details. He cares for you. He knows all the details. And in Romans 8.32, it says this. So amazing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We can rest in this today. We can hold on to this today. We can take great comfort. We can take great encouragement that the God of the universe, who's worthy of all things, cares for you, cares for me, knows the intimate details of your life. Matthew chapter six, it talks about prayer and it says, when you call out to him, he already knows what you need before you even ask. Because the God of the universe knows and he cares. He doesn't just know, but he cares. And you're his child if you've placed your faith and trust in him. This morning in this text, we've seen the, not to fear God, but to fear man. Put a right view of the almighty, almighty God. We've seen that nothing escapes his knowledge. A word of comfort, yet a word of, of warning. And we've seen in God's greatness and in his grace, he cares for you. So in 2022, let me ask you a question. If you're a follower of Jesus, for this next year, is your fear of God rightly sized? Is your fear of God the right size? Or have you overly blown out, blown up the fear of man while shrinking that view of God? May 2022 be the year that we have the right view of God, the large view of God, that we're in awe of God. We see the greatness of God and we allow that to transform our lives. We allow that to transform our decisions and not a fear of man or an impressing of man. May this be a year, 2022, be a year that we elevate a view of God, the greatness of the King. And yet in that amazing aspect, he says, fear not for I care for you. You're of more value than many sparrows.